Okay, Screen Heat Miami. We're in for another week coming fresh off the Bitcoin conference. Excitement. Yes, there's they made it virtually rain. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin is back up. Actually, but when, when Miami when Miami strip coin uh, strip clubs start accepting Bitcoin and crypto, you know that it's gone mainstream. It's over. It's over. <laughs> Make it rain in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, just just an just just a smartphone and a QR code that could take you places. Yeah. So here we are, the one and only Screen Heat Miami with your host JL Martinez and Kevin Sharpley. We are brought to you by the Miami Media and Film Market and Kajik Multimedia. And Cinevision. Cinevision and Chemical. 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 I tried my best, my best Spanish accent. Me too. I'm going to get that Cinevision one day. Cinevision. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get it. But, you know, I use my best Spanish accent because we are going to jump into a lot of Hispanic fare. But before we jump into that Hispanic fare, our guest. We have to celebrate. Yes. We have to celebrate, Kevin, because our special guest is not only a very special guest, he's also our 50th anniversary edition. Da, da, da. 50th. Man. Screen Eat turns 5 0 with this episode. And I am so excited by our guest today. Hope he's listening. He is a Miami guy, of course, mega producer from Miami who has made it big in Tinseltown. Big one. We had to get a big one for this one. Yes. Huge. It is huge. Randall Emmett, super producer. He has worked with some of the best, produced films for Mark Wahlberg, Martin Scorsese, the Irishman. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger. And he just premiered his directorial debut at the Gasparilla Film Festival. We didn't make it there because we were flush in Bitcoin land. <laughs> right. But his directorial debut at the Gasparilla Film Festival. And Midnight, I'm quite it's sure. called Midnight in the Switch. Midnight in the Switchgrass. It's a cool title, and it's got some really cool uh, actors as well. Great, great stars attached to that movie. So we're very excited for Randall Emmett and and his uh, directorial offering uh, with this film that had a Florida premiere. Yeah, we got to mention some of the names, though. I mean, Megan Fox, Bruce Willis, Machine Gun Kelly also known oh, yes. as Colson Baker, or maybe I, I switched that around, but I knew him as MGK first, uh, following his career as a rapper um, and an MC, which, you know, many, many years ago, this has to be about seven years ago, you know, I've been following that career, but he's he, he's turned into an incredible actor. So it's, it's great to see the, the big names that, Emmett has on his directorial debut. So big up. Well, you know, for his years as, as a huge mega producer, imagine he has access to talent. Uh, but yeah, big ups to Randall to get them to commit to something that um, that he was actually directing. So that's that's going to be so interesting to see that movie. But again, we have to congratulate our, our good friend Randall Emmett, who is Miami's own, straight out of Kendall's, straight out of New World <laughs> School of the Arts, making yeah. good in the hood. And you'll hear more about him in the interview because, you know, we like to focus on the, jo the journey here at Screen Heat Miami. And you'll also hear about his experience directing this movie. You'll hear about his experience as a new father. You'll hear about his experience coming up in Miami. And for an added bonus, you'll hear about his experience as one of the poker kings. Oh, yes. If you didn't know, he's, he's turned. The, yes. Yeah. What, what maybe started as a hobby is kind of like a second career now for him. He's doing very well at some major, major poker tournaments across the country. Yes. Yes. And you mentioned, um, I think, a word that I was going to get to, which is major. 
In the Heights. Mm-hmm. Major expectations for In the Heights. And it did. It hit some big numbers and critical Critically. acclaim. Critical yes. acclaim. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. Rotten Tomatoes did very well. Most of the reviews by far were overwhelmingly positive. So the industry and the media responded very positively. There were high hopes. Again, this was a strategic Warner Media day and date release in theaters, over 3,500 screens across the country, as well as HBO Max. So the expectation was it would do well both in the box office and on the streaming platform. Uh, however, as numbers started to pour in over the weekend, realized that the, the, the opening was actually softer than expected, uh, actually wound up coming in second to the sequel of, to The Quiet Place. And what was expected to be a 15 to $20 million opening wound up being shy of 12 million. So there's a lot of head scratching going on in terms of how a film that was so heavily promoted by Warner Media, by its stars including Lin-Manuel Miranda and and Chu the director that it just kind of fell a little flat especially since this was such a an offering to a U.S. Latino community that felt like they were very underrepresented thus far within the Hollywood mainstream yeah I mean additionally it was soft on HBO Max so that's what, yeah, they're saying, and and uh, streamers don't like to give out their internal numbers, but there there are some third parties now that are that have some kind of measurement tools that they can see how many streams uh, over the three day weekend, and it looks like it didn't do well. And this is something that was backed up by, I believe, an HBO executive who said that if you're doing well at the box office, you should also be doing well on the streaming platform and, and vice versa. And it didn't seem like those numbers were cor- correlating for this particular film. Well, you know, that's something good in terms of an understanding of what's happening in the future, because this whole date and date, people really were wondering how that was going to play out. And when they're saying that what they're seeing is if something is doing well in the theaters on that day, day and date, it also does well on the platforms. So we're getting more of an understanding as we're seeing more of these day and dates. And for In the Heights, the hopes are, and my hopes are, because I saw it, I enjoyed it. My hopes are that the critical success gives it legs as it moves forward. So me. Sure. Yeah, no, know, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. exactly right. And and there is still that possibility because, again, because of the we're still just kind of getting out of the pandemic and most theaters are open, but at limited capacity. The idea is that a lot of the bigger blockbusters that will be coming out later this summer are also being kind of pushed. So there is an opportunity with not a whole ton of competition for it to do well, a la The Greatest Showman, which had, I think only an eight or nine million dollar opening, but then went on to gross over four hundred million dollars worldwide. That's right. It had a lot of legs and musicals sometimes are, have, have a bit of a challenge when they hit the box office. So we'll see. But what, what do you think, JL? How did you feel about In the Heights? Well, it's a good question, my friend. Like <laughs> I was very proud as a Latino to see our culture out there, seeing the waving of the Cuban flag and the Puerto Rican flag and the Dominican flag, you know, being from Miami, you know, those communities are so much a part of our culture, not only in Latin America and the Caribbean, but here in Miami, obviously New York as well, a hotbed for Latino cultures, a real melting pot. Same goes for Los Angeles, uh, which is primarily the Mexican community over there, which is so strong and has such a a beautiful culture and history as well. Uh, So, I felt good emotionally for that the film was made, that it was put out there, that it was giving underrepresented Latinos a voice. But that said, you know, I don't know. There could have been things done, I think, within the story structure and the character arcs, maybe to make it a little bit of a stronger uh, sell to the public. I think that, you know, it did go on a little long. And that was one of the criticisms for why the box office may have failed. It was over two hours. I think they maybe could have cut two it down hours a bit and thirty-seven more. minutes. 
yeah, kept the pace up a little bit more, but it did feel a little long at times. It did feel like some of the character story arcs didn't make a lot of sense at times to me. And I felt like this was a good opening of the door. And I think that hopefully the response from the industry is, okay, let's build on this now. Let's go back and see what worked and what didn't work. And then really go back into our stable of Latino talent across the country and come up with something else and something else and just kind of build on, on the great efforts of Lin-Manuel Miranda and having done this first as a Broadway play and then as a feature film with, with Warner Media to really kind of build on this momentum and not kind of let it just kind of be a one-off. That's, that's my hope overall. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I'm not the biggest musical fan. So, you know, I, I, I took it in a tongue in cheek way. But, you know, I, I felt the film was really enjoyable. Uh, some of what you said, I, I do agree with. Um, I It's my hopes, as you said, that th- this is also a building moment. And like I said, that it has legs and it has the ability to continue to churn and move forward and, you know, collect more fans over time. But in general, it seems like the Hispanic media content is doing well on the, we see yes. the streamers um, with Hispanic content, with Latin content. I, you know, I don't know if I'm getting it right. Uh, with with the titling there, but it, it seems like that content is doing phenomenally. Seguro que sí. So what <laughs> we have out of the LA Times is that the next sort of battleground in the streaming wars will be Spanish streamers, and 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 not only Spanish streamers like what Univision is launching with their own platform, uh, Telemundo being part of the Peacock streamer but also the mainstream general market streamers a la Netflix and Disney Plus also jumping heavily into Latin markets, both in the U.S. and internationally. There are a lot of hotbeds now for not only distribution, but production. Spain is a hotbed of production, just in general. Netflix built a huge production facility outside of Madrid, which is doing everything from sand and sword epics to modern day dramas. One of the biggest sleeper hits out of Spain, which wound up on Netflix mentioned in the article is Money Heist. Love Money Heist. Extremely well on Netflix. Absolutely. Uh, There's also a popular Mexican series, Who Killed Sarah, that uh, is also doing extremely well for, for the streamer. So I believe that going back to what the industry should be focusing on both in the international Spanish speaking communities and countries and regions, but also the U.S. Latino community is, again, using this energy as an opportunity to grow the ever critical subscriber base because a lot of these streamers are fast approaching sort of a pivot point, right? Where they've, they've saturated certain markets. Critical so mass. now where are the, where, yeah, critical mass, where are the additional growth areas? So I, and I believe that number two by far are the Spanish speaking markets, both in the U S and internationally. Yeah. I I mean, I can jump in on this. I'm not going to opinion as much on money heist because I haven't seen the whole season. And I, I, I I try not to opinion unless I've seen the whole season, except Loki. I'm going to talk about that after the jump, but I have seen the whole season of who killed Sarah. And I loved it. I loved it. And the second season dropped two weeks ago. And I started watching the second season. I mean, you know, it's it's a lot of candy there and, um, you know, a bit of a novella feel to it. But it is, you know, this kind of high energy storytelling. The characters are well fleshed out. The story, like I said, is kind of, you know, cotton candy, but it has intrigue. It has strong acting. It has, you know, strong visuals, everything that you want in a series. And, you know, I'm trying to learn more Spanish on top of that because, you know, everybody in my house speaks Spanish. So it's helped a bit even in in that vein. But this kind of electricity, I think, is what's going to carry through. 
I did want to mention something else because we are talking about Hispanic fare and growth markets for the streamers. There's a show that I've watched and the second season just came out. It's a show called Lupin, which is a show, right. a French show. And that is Netflix. When the first season was out, it was the number one uh, show for Netflix. Now the second season is out. It's the number one show for Netflix. It stars Omar Sy, who is actually a brother that uh, hails. He is from Paris, but he has African origins. And so, you know, you see now a lot of this expansion within the global realm of the streamers. It's French. I watch it in French because I feel you can feel more of the inflection and the energy in the original actor's voice. And to see that shoot back up to number one really does show the strength and the power of storytelling as opposed to, you know, being relegated to a particular market or a particular culture or or a particular country. So, you know, there's a lot in saying that it's, it's all about the global marketplace. Now. We, 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 we have the (laughs) Spanish, we have the French international. Yes. We and C. And we have, again, our very strong and powerful storytelling locals, Randall Emmett. I really want to jump into this interview. Let's jump. See what, what, what our 305er has to say for our big 50th episode. Here we go. Oh, that's Great. beautiful. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> the Hollywood office. Yeah. Hey, yep. It's the Hollywood office. <laughs> First of all, thank you for doing this. This is really great. It's our 50th podcast, so it's a super oh, important oh, for us. That's amazing. So that's great. for you to do our 50th and someone from Miami, it doesn't yeah. get any better than that. We should have gold plated our microphones. Oh, come on now. Come on now. <laughs> so um, from what we understand, we only have 30 minutes. So we want to go ahead and jump into this. Usually yeah. Yeah. We, for us, it's about the journey. So, you know, we want to talk a little bit about Miami first. So the Miami story. OK, the, the Miami story. Uh, yeah. I was born and raised in, in Kendall Lakes, uh, Miami, you know, it's a suburb of Miami. Uh, and, uh, I was born and raised there. It was great. It was like, you know, it was like suburbia living. I grew up at, you know, on a neighborhood block where you knew everybody, everybody played together in the streets and, you know, everybody went to the same elementary school. We all went to the same junior high. Uh, and, and, and it was just simple suburban life. I, I didn't know any different. Miami wasn't sexy at that point. It was, you know, senior retirement living Miami beach. So nobody gave a shit about Miami. We were just from Miami. Uh, it wasn't until um, I, 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 I fell in love with the arts very young as an actor. And, uh, and then uh, in, in high school, I went to Sunset for a year and then New World had opened up, was going to open. And uh, 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 I was obsessed with acting at that time. And I went and um, uh, auditioned and got accepted. And then they opened up the New World. I was the first class. I was junior year, and uh, that really was the beginning of changing kind of my career. When I was in junior high and elementary school, I was obsessed with movies, and my best childhood friend, uh, who I make films with today, um, we would shoot on camcorders that were attached to the VCR and edit, you know, in this the, the, the ghetto version of, of the way you had to do it back then. And, uh, you know, you press play and record, and then you could go 12 feet with the camera. And, you know, we'd come up with all these music videos, and short films and it was great it was great um when i got into new world my life started to really change i i, I was bullied as a kid i'm i was always the theater geek sort of say and when i got to new world i found kind of like my people you know it was uh beyond multicultural it was uh economically all over the place you know some people were rich some people were really really poor and struggling just to eat so you really had kind of a melting pot of miami in one building. And, and for me, that really was great for me because I grew up in the suburbs and, you know, everybody had middle class lives. Nobody was rich. Nobody was poor. Everybody was basic. And, mm. and, and everybody was provided for. We had we all wanted and we had nice Christmases, but it wasn't nobody was living like Beverly Hills or Star Island, you know, and um, you get to New World and you've got some Star Island and you've got real, real 
struggle. And so I really found like my sense of place there. And I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. And it was the first time in my childhood life that I felt like I fit in. And, and um, I made great friends and, and the arts were the, were the centerpiece of the school. And we were like all obsessed, you know, kids like out of the TV show fame, you know, we, there were dancers, there were musicians, there were fine artists and there were actors and, and singers. And just to get through that, that is where I built my confidence as a young artist. They really taught us to be an artist, to not be embarrassed by it. You know, even if you don't fit in, none of us fit in at that school. We had all walks of life. So, you know, that was cool because, you know, I felt like, you know, we all were super talented, but we were all together. We were all kind of like one group. And um, and then uh, through the acting and through the school, I, I, I started making, I don't know what it is here, but um, I started making uh, short films. And I started taking like the teacher in the school that everybody hated and made them the star. You know, there was this teacher, uh, Mrs. Papino, and she was like ruthless social studies teacher and everybody was afraid of her and she failed people all the time. And I went and I did like a horror film with her and I went up to her and I said, will you play the lead and we're going to kill you in this movie? She's like, okay. And people were like shocked that I, you know, so it was like, I was talent recruiting them, you know? And, um, and then I would put up posters, you know, in the, in the lunch place and then everybody would come at lunch and they watched my short films. Um, and then, you know, my, my, at the time when I was graduating, I'm just going to get us all the way to college and you can, I'll shut up. But um, basically when I was graduating, uh, 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 my parents had gotten separated for a while. They were separated in my senior year and we were struggling financially. And so I had to get a scholarship. So because of my acting ability, because the school, what it gave to me, I had a lot of scholarship opportunities. And even though I was so obsessed with film, I didn't want to transition because I was like, what do you mean go to film? I didn't, I didn't understand what that meant at that time. So I took the acting scholarship in New York. I wanted to get out of Florida went to New York. And then that summer after my freshman year, um, I worked on a feature film as a PA. And, and, and the night after they gave me that walkie talkie, I call my parents at like eight in the morning on the subway home. And I said, I'm done with the acting. I'm finished. And they're like, what? I said, done. Not going back to that school, not going back to acting. I found my calling. They, they thought I lost my mind or I was on drugs. And what, what just happened is, it confirmed for me where I was supposed to be. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I was going to be a director or a writer or a, a cameraman or a gaffer or a lecturer. I just didn't know. But I knew that I needed to be on sets for the rest of my life. I knew that it felt like my sanctuary and I felt calm. When I acted, even though I was good when I was younger, and when I say good, I, I don't think I was great. I think it was good. I had to work really hard to be good. I had to like, like spend... 10, 15 minutes before I go on stage, working my ass off to get character, you know, like really rehearse my ass off. And whereas other actors, you know, around me who like won Tony Awards now, like my friend Katie Finneran or other, like they, they rehearsed, but they were just natural. And I was good, but I wasn't great. And, and I think, you know, hard work, you can always be good at something. Doesn't mean you can be great. Just because I want to fucking play football as a Jewish kid that's 5'9", doesn't mean I'm going to play football. You know, I might be great as the kicker, but that's about it, right? So, so you have to know what you're good at, right? And I felt like I was good, but I wasn't great. And when I got to the film school, after I called my parents and said, I'm not going back to acting, after we got through the, my crazy conversation, I enrolled in film school, and from that moment, I felt like I fit in. I knew where I was supposed to be. I didn't know what I was going to do in film, but I knew that this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life, and I have to figure it out. And and that began my journey, you know, to producing and 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 then yeah, well, that, you know, directing. That's what they say. You, I guess they'd say you found your tribe. Yes, basically. <laughs> yes. When I walk on a movie set. I feel more at home on a movie set than I do anywhere else other than my home with my kids. Like they, my office, it's fine. But when I walk on a set, I know I, I see the, the creativity is so high level. And when it gets ugly on a set, I, I feel like it's okay. I know how to deal with, you know, whereas um, anywhere else, I just, I've never felt that. Um, I do feel it when I'm in a theater, um, but not on the stage as a performer, like it, like more of a church. It's like more of a church for me. It's like I walk in the theater, I'm transformed. And I think it just goes back to my childhood of being in the theater a lot. But, but film is definitely where I, where I, 
you know, will spend the rest of my life. So I just want to make this connection. So once you got to New World, you were exposed to different types of people and different oh, yeah. types of lifestyles. And <laughs> your your library really is a kaleidoscope and a mosaic of, you know, different lifestyles and different people. Would you say that that helped to set you up to connect with different types of stories? I think so. I I don't know. I don't know if consciously, you know, maybe more subconsciously, you know, I think when you go into a foreign arts world, like, you know, the first time I ever uh, had somebody confront me about their homosexuality was in my, like at 15 years old. Now, a lot of kids, probably in normal high schools, I don't know because I didn't wasn't in that world because I was in the arts my life. But a lot of kids probably didn't meet somebody who was out as a gay man or a gay woman till they were in college, maybe. So for me, I didn't understand at fifteen or fourteen. Like I knew maybe I grew up in the suburbs, and then you know one of my best friends to this day confronts me and says, um, "If you have any questions at fifteen, sit like around a party." Because if you have any questions about you know. What, whether I like girls or guys, you, know, you can ask me. And I was like, well, I don't really have any questions. No, you probably have questions. And I was like, now it's uncomfortable. And he's like, just ask me. And I was like, well, do you like, you know, and he explained to me, and that was my first experience of having somebody say, you know what, you should just ask. And, if, and, and, and it's not a bad thing. And, and, and then from that moment, that person, my friend to this day, you know, is one of my best friends. And, you know, that really kind of, brought me into this melting pot. You know, it didn't matter if you were gay, straight, bi, black, white, Hispanic, you know, green, purple, just didn't matter. And I think probably I never saw any difference in people because of the world that I was in. So when I got to New York, I mean, and you talked about a melting pot, you know, that's times a thousand. You know, Miami today is super fucking melting pot. But back then it was, you know, more, it was... I think it was more spread out and segregated a little bit. Today, you know, everywhere you go in Miami, there's there's nobody's the same. But New York City, everybody's in the same place, you know. And so, yeah, I think I think it probably set me up. I guess you know, not think subconsciously. I, I just never, you know, I never understood racism because it was never part of my world. My world was like accepting of everybody, you know, didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what age you came out of the closet, didn't matter what age you, you were curious. You know, uh, I had friends that were, that were super curious and they open up to me and say, you know, I'm not sure. And I say, that's okay. Okay. Go figure it out. We'll talk about it tomorrow after the weekend. You know, that's how my <laughs> high school, they would just come to me. I was like, I, you know, and they're like, well, how do you know you're straight? I'm like, that's just what I like, you know? And, and, you know, we were, it was a very open um, world. And I love that. I love that people could be vulnerable to each other at such a young age. I mean, we were 15 to 18 years old, you know, and just talking about shit that most people wait till they're, you know, maybe late twenties or mid twenties. So uh, I think today the world, because of social media, people are talking about everything, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, but today kids at like 14 are, you know, tweeting each other. And, they see you know, everything. Seeing everything on, you're seeing everything online. But but back then, you know, we were isolated. You know, we didn't have yeah. social media. We didn't have access to the outside world. You only had, by the way, even California in my mind felt like that was countries away, not states away. So uh, today, you know, I feel like you want to go to London and you've never been to London, you can go online. You can figure things out. You can get a playbook together. But back, you know, in my day, it was a little slower than that. So <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, I do. I do think, I think between that and New York city in college and same thing when I went to art school for film, um, you know, I, I, it was always a melting pot. My, my film school was so diverse. It was so mixed. It was, you know, economic backgrounds of all levels and, and ethnic backgrounds of all levels. So I, I've only been in art school, you know, since I was 15, all the way till I graduated college. So for me, I had eight years of, of just the melting pot. So probably, definitely, uh, you know, played into me never seeing anything different than just, I want to work with great artists. Yeah, and I think that I was lucky in my career that I worked with so many different kinds of people and, you know, continue to try to do that. And, and so I guess, you know, continuing this journey, obviously we've heard about Miami. Now you're training in New York. Yeah. Uh, at what point does L.A. come into the picture? 
So LA, you know, when I was in film school, a lot of my colleagues in film school or peers, well, peers are the right word, peers were, they were artists, very artsy filmmakers. You know, they want, you know, they're New Yorkers. They're very art, artsy in film school. You have a lot of art, art more, where they lean more to the art side. I always wanted to make movies in Hollywood. I, I just, I, I was related to a, a producer named Jerry Bruckheimer. I, I am related, you know, distant cousin. My mother grew up with him. And, and, um, and I, you know, I used to plaster his posters on my wall. My friends would come over to my dorm and be like, oh, really? I mean, Top Gun or Days of Thunder, like really Randall, you know, Bad Boy, you know, like shit I like. I mean, those are the movies that I, you know, Scarface, you know, I like I like what I like. And and uh, and so I was like, listen, this is the kind of thing I'm attracted to. I don't get mad that you're attracted to, you know, more artistic uh, films. And so the minute I graduated film school, I knew I was going to go to California. I didn't, I knew, and I, at that point I had produced a lot of short films in college and I had produced my first feature. Um, and in my college at the time, because everything had to be shot on film, we didn't have digital. We didn't have the camcorders. We didn't have the high def. We didn't have any of that shit. It's old school. So if you wanted to shoot a film, you had to shoot on 16 or Super 8, and so I had gone to my school my senior year and said, look, I'm not doing another short film. I, I've, at that point, I found my calling in producing, and I produced probably 20 shorts, right, for all the different seniors and stuff, and I said, I want to produce a feature, and they said, the only way we're going to let you produce feature, use all the equipment here, and go off in the summer and do this is if you do it with a, a, a kid who wants to direct and a writer from screenplay and put it all three of you do it as your combined thesis film. So I went, there were maybe five writers in my, my grade. So I went to all five of them. I said, do you have any feature scripts? And, um, and, and, and the first three were horrible. They were, I, I didn't even know what they were about. And then the, the fourth one was really good. And that's the one I picked. And, you know, it was, uh, it was about a guy, a homeless guy who's African-American who thinks he's Jesus Christ. So, so, so that's the movie I picked. So I had this screenplay, and um, and the actor's name was Keith Hamilton Cobb. It was on a soap. He's like very good looking guy, and uh, and it's this great story about a doctor who's treating this guy, and then you don't you don't know at the end is he really is he not is he delu- you know it's this really neat movie. So I made this, I, I produced this film, I raised all the money, and and uh, and then I finished the feature, and I moved out to L.A. with this movie that I had that I thought was awesome. And it was, it was, it was good for student feature. And, but the subject matter wasn't like, they weren't <laughs> jumping at me. Yeah. It was kind of artsy. Uh, That's kind of artsy. It, it was extreme artsy, but, <laughs> but I was very proud of it. Cause you know, I went off for the summer and we lived in a dorm and ate pizza every day. We shot all over Long Island. And, and anyway, I sold it because at that time the DVD market was through the roof. You know, the VHS DVD market at that time, you could sell a pen and they would buy it. So, I, I you know, uh, and so my story goes, you know, I sold it. Uh, I think I made like 20 grand back then, which was like 100 today. And I blew that in about three months out of my <laughs> mind. And, California and ain't then cheap. I then I was You're, broke. Then I was yeah. like, that's how, that's how I got to LA. And then, and then when I was in LA, um, uh, you know, I was very, very close with Mark Wahlberg, who was my best friend today. And um, he was Marky Mark then. He was just a done fear. And uh, he introduced me to a friend of mine today, Randy Spelling, who's Aaron Dunn. And uh, Aaron was like a mentor to me and said, you should go work at a talent agency. And that will teach you because you don't know the business. You know how to make a film and you understand film lingo but you don't understand anything about the business of making a movie. And I did it um, today in my film school in New York, they do teach the business and they, and I go there a lot and I speak and they have professionals come in. But I think back then it was more like just make the movie and, and be good at that. Um, and so then I worked at ICM. I got a job at ICM because Aaron had, uh, wrote a letter of recommendation for me. And I worked there for about a year as an assistant and learned kind of the talent, the packaging and kind of who the studios are, who the players are. Uh, and then I worked for my best friend, Mark Wahlberg for many years. Uh, and then I just went out and tried to raise money for my first film because I was so hungry to produce. And that's where I met my partner, George, who I've been partners with for 23 years. And we, we went and uh, made kind of our first feature together back then, which was more of an artsy movie. It was about a um, a, a bunch of street kids. Uh, one was um, uh, 
uh, gay, street hustler, prostitute, young, like teen, and these kids on the streets of Las Vegas and kind of the life that they live. And like Daryl Hannon, it went to Berlin Film Festival, went to a lot of festivals, and it really kind of started my trajectory. And, I, and, then, I, and then I failed really well for the next five years of making movies. I, we lost money. We sucked at it. We were... We, we, we just we were just excited to make films. You know, we're so happy. We had raised George and raised money for us. And he, George is a wealthy guy and put money up. And we just we, we started doing it. And then we started learning the business, really learning the international and the tax credits and the incentives and, and, and kind of what actors values are. And you can't just go make a movie for any price you want, because there's only just like if you build a house, you can't build a house, you know, for 80 million if you're living in, you know, a certain area that doesn't you know, support that. So it's similar to movies uh, in a, in a basic sense, but um, so that's it. And then I started making movies and then I just never stopped because I was broke for so long, poor for so long, struggled for so long, car repossessed, kicked out of my apartment, living on my friend's couch, all that shit, riding the bike to, to the office, you know, for a while, all that stuff, you know, my parents cut me off. Finally I had enough of my bullshit. I mean, telling them that going to the nightclub was going to help me make meet people. They got smart too. Everybody got smart. I outsmarted them for a while. And then, and when they cut me off that nine months later, I was, I was making movies. So it was the best thing they ever did. Wow. So, so what would you say would be the first movie that everything clicked? You're like, okay, this is it. It really this is gonna did work. it for yeah. you. Everything just worked. That it Success felt like it all. Or just making a, you know I mean? Like when the one that really put me on the map. Or like Holly, Hollywood, Hollywood success. Hollywood, yeah, success. Hollywood success. I, I would say, well, the most successful. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be I the most. Okay, yeah. I would, I, would, I, would say, I would say, okay, I would say, Lone Survivor, Silence, and Irishman were the three films that changed my career on a lot of different levels. Not even publicly, like Silence, my relationship with Martin Scorsese, all of his team, which got me to Irishman, which, you know, all that stuff. Um, Lone Survivor, because I really raised all the money. I made the decision to do that film. Mark had brought it to me. People said I was going to lose my ass, which it ended up being my most successful movie. Um, so also all that stuff. But I would say, um, I would say a, a, a movie that was important also along the way was a movie I did called Narc with Joe Carnahan back in the day because I was young, you know, and we were just making small movies and that movie had fallen apart and they called us in the middle of the night said, "Can we step in and, and help this film?" And we did. And then ended up going to Sundance and Tom Cruise took it from Lionsgate to the Paramount, turned it into like this big you know, iconic film. And so there, there was a lot of different moments along my way, you know, um, you know, uh, TV wise, you know, obviously, you know, with 50 and doing, you know, power was a big iconic moment for me, you know, at the end of our partnership, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, all these kind of moments, you know, have, have shaped who I am, you know, even though, uh, you, you know, sometimes you, you, your friendships, is loud. Sometimes they don't, but at the end of the day, like I'm grateful for everything. We, you know, 50 and I made a lot of movies together. Um, you know, we, we sold power together and, you know, obviously he's gone on to, to become a, you know, a television mogul. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that, you know, all these steps within my life add up, you know, that's the, 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 the successes and the failures, uh, you know, what I've done things, differently uh with some relationships of course you know you have to learn from that um but at the end of the day i'm proud of all the things that i put out there and and i and i feel like now you know with the directing you know i was really burnt out uh producing you know i really hit a wall you know i've done 120 movies and uh and and i got to a point where it wasn't really fun for me anymore uh it's fun now because i've got my creative passion back but uh, I was kind of on autopilot, you know, my partner, my company, I would package the film. I would say, this is what we're going to make it for. It was kind of like a, like, like being at Walmart, you know, turn it to that. And I would just turn it over to them and I wouldn't even show up anymore. Like as a producer, I just turn it over, make the money for the company and then on to the next five. Like it just didn't even. And so I woke up one day and I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do because I can't do this for 20 years anymore. Like, I can't go another 20 years. Like, when I produce a movie, The Irishman or Silence or, 
or, or Lone Survivor or Two Guns with, you know, a high level thing, that's exciting. But when I'm producing the smaller stuff, I was losing my, my, my drive and my, my passion. I, and I don't hide things very well. So I said to George, you know, I think I got to try directing and I'm probably going to fail at it. If I hate it, then I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Then I'll just produce and I'll sit on a beach in Miami and I'll phone it in. Like, and I'll just raise my kids and, and that'll be the end of it. Um, because I was really frustrated. I felt like, you know, I, even though I had achieved a lot, I, lost my creative art artistry that I really am. And I, and I was pushed that aside. And so I found this script midnight in the switchgrass, which by the way, will premiere at the Gasparilla film festival because I love Florida. So there you go. And nice. that way, but um, yeah, exactly. Is, is it, li- um, is it so, live or is it, is it virtual and live or do you know, is it no, going to be a real- live event? June third, June thirteenth. They're just going to. You guys found out now. They haven't even announced it. Yet. There you go. But screen need exclusive. We love it. Yeah, we got the great. exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So June thirty. But um, so I, so I, I decide I'm going to try to direct and and I start putting it together and uh, and and I get the screen cast and I fly to. Um, I fly to uh, uh, Puerto Rico to start pre and I'm petrified. Like I'm calling people I look up to like every night having meltdowns. Like I'm calling Antoine Fuqua. I'm calling Michael Polish, all these directors that I like look up to and think are like, I'm calling Martin Scorsese's partner. I'm like, dude, this is the biggest mistake of my career. Don't worry. I'm not going to end it at 30 because I have too much to say. Um, so I'm like, I'm, I'm like, it's the end of my fucking career. This is the dumbest decision I've ever made. And they're like, just take it day by day. And so what happened was when I got down there and I started prepping, I've never sat still in 20 years. So here I am with a crew that I know everybody by first name that everybody, and I'm so nervous but excited that I'm starting to live in the moment again. And now every day is exciting because it's an unknown. And if I don't know something, I have to be honest. I can't pretend. Like as a producer, you could be like, they could ask you, what's it like to shoot in, 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 in some country you've never been? And I go, oh, it's great. Best hotel, best restaurant. You're going to love it. Bye-bye. But, but as a director, if they ask you, do you want a steady camera and dolly shot? You haven't fucking thought it through. You can't be like, that dolly shot's great. What's the You gotta say, okay, I don't, hold on. Like, you know, I'm freaking out. He's like, if you're not freaking out, then you're not, you know, on the right path. So this is good. And then Emma Koskoff, who's a, was Martin Scorsese's producer, who I produced Irishman with, her husband was producing the movie with me. And I would call her and she, they would all be like talking me off the ledge, basically. <laughs> and when I got, yeah, and when I got to Puerto Rico and I start started pre-production, it was the first time in my career after 120 movies that I really was like slowing down and being in the moment and really just being truthful as an artist. And I really couldn't get enough of it. And I didn't know I was going to have those feelings. I really didn't know what to expect. I knew I needed that creative stimulation because I had lost some of that along the way as I was producing in, in the latter years. And uh, not that I don't love producing, I just needed to be recharged. Uh, and I got there and, and the pre-production process, you know, 12, 15, 16 hour days went by in minutes. And I just was having the time of my life. And then I said to myself, as I really over-prepared, rehearsed, blocked, you know, shot listed. I just kept working and working and working. And then when, when it came time to day one of shooting and the actors arrived, I had another meltdown. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to suck. Like, even though I was great pre-production, I'm going to suck at, uh, you know, uh, uh, directing. And I, you know, doubted myself because you go through all these stages and, you know, day one came and I walked on the set and I just felt like, wow, this is, this is what it's about. This is the high I needed. And, and, and I just, was uh, just in it and I just loved every minute of it and I love you know when you don't know something you can you know it's okay not to know everything and you can you have a team around you and you can ask questions and you know if you're not sure and then you know every day that went by I became more confident and stronger in my vision and just really owned it I went right into a second movie after that I went right into a second movie after that with uh, De Niro and Malkovich and Jack Houston. And the second movie, I felt like I had lived 10 lifetimes after 
doing the first one because I had learned, I had learned so much on the first one, made, you know, made mistakes and, 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 and different things. And so the second one, I just felt like I had lived a whole lifetime, you know, as a, after directing my first movie during a pandemic with three different shutdowns. So it's just, it's just been an incredible journey and directing has really uh, uh, brought me back uh, uh, one second, yeah, the guy's just finishing an interview. Um, so I, uh, so I, you know, it brought me back, you know, to my true artist self, you know, and I, I'm really, really grateful that I took it. A lot of people said to me, they're, they're so, they were so proud and impressed, my colleagues, because, you know, you get pigeonholed in our business, uh, um, you get pigeonholed into one thing. You know, Randall's a great producer. Randall's a great producer, but he's a, but he's a, but you know, he can never direct, you know, or this guy's a great actor. He can never be a musician. This guy's a great, um, you know, whatever you may be our, sometimes our business doesn't support, um, you know, change. And I'm really, really grateful that I had so many colleagues around me that said, you know what, Rand, you know, whatever you're going to do, we're going to support and whatever, whatever the outcome of that is, we're going to support you. And that meant a lot to me. So I'm just grateful that, you know, I, I took the leap. Um, it was scary. It still is scary. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm having the time of my life doing it and I'm so passionate about it. So there you go. That's a, that's amazing, Randall. Thanks for that. You know, when we were in film school, as a book I read, Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, and one of the first things they said, he said was, you only need one reason to direct your first movie, and that's just, it's your first movie. Uh, and if you can get through that, everything else becomes easier. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you got you through your first one and now your second one. Uh, and, and now you have this whole other facet of your career uh, to look forward to. So, you know, this has been a great ride and talk about looking forward to more of your work. Uh, we always end these interviews uh, with two what we call signature questions uh, right at the end. Uh, and so I'm going to ask the first part of it and then Kevin will ask the second part. So if you're ready for the first part, it's basically a back to the future question. So what advice would you give your younger self? Yourself in Kindle. Sorry. Yeah. The only thing I, the only advice when I look back and I, and I try to think, what would I tell myself today? And what do I tell young people when I speak? I always say the one thing, if I was to look back is don't be so impatient and enjoy the process and the journey. It's easy to get caught up. Like I did, and I don't, regret anything at all but i definitely would have said be kinder to myself with the pressure i put on myself to be successful and as i was going through the journey take it all in and don't rush to the next destination and i think i did that and also that contributed to probably part of my success but i definitely would tell my younger self Take it easy, take it all in. You don't have to rush and enjoy it all um, and, and slow down. And I think that's, that's probably what I've learned the most in the last 20 years in my industry and in my business and about myself is to, you know, now I'm able to slow down now that I have children and, you know, take, take a little more time for myself and my kids and family and stuff like that. So that, that's what I would say. Just enjoy the journey, even when it sucks and you're sleeping on a couch and you're broke and your car gets repossessed and you're so angry that you want to quit the, the business because it's not happening the way you want it to happen. You know, I just say, you know, that's when you've got to also say, you know what? It's okay. It's going to be all right. It's going to end up the way it's supposed to end up. And I think, uh, I think that's, that's what I would have told my younger self. Okay. And then JL, I took the first question. Sorry, JL. Um, can you hit, hit him with the second question? All right. So the second, it's very similar, but the second question is, uh, you know, what advice would you give a young filmmaker or producer in today's world with so many options out there and how this industry, as you know, has evolved so quickly, even over the last couple of years, um, that's just getting started or that is looking to break into the industry today. I, I would just say, you know, if you feel that you're not going to be happy doing anything else, but making films. And that was how I felt. And you're absolutely sure there's nothing else in this world for you, but, but being a filmmaker, right. Then you can never quit. You can never give up and you have to just go for it and be determined 
be driven, be, be innovative, be different. Don't let people tell you you have to be a certain way or fit in a certain box. That's all bullshit. You create your own box, your own journey, so that others will say to you 20 years from now, hey, I like how he did it. You know, that was a really neat way uh, or she uh, got there. And I think that, you know, my advice is just be determined and be and be persistent and don't give up just because one person or one company says you're you don't fit in their box that's okay that just means there's another company down the street that will be the right fit for you and i just i just know people get uh so people get uh frustrated very easily you know we're human beings we want to feel accomplished we want to impress our parents and our friends. And we want to be able to say, you know, look what we did. And, and, and sometimes we don't have a lot to show for that when we're starting out. I, I remember I used to go home to Miami and my parents would say, Oh, you know, my son's in Hollywood. And, and they, and their friends would say, what are you working on? And, oh, I'm answering phones at, at an agency. So they didn't understand that that was part of the journey. You know, that was a, another step towards what I was trying to do until they see your name on a, on a movie or a TV show. So for me, I just want to tell people just, you can't quit. You got to just keep that passion alive, keep that fire, you know, and, and, and just be determined and just keep trying and, and going until something starts to click. So that's it. Yeah, that that's amazing. Um, I'm being a little selfish here because there were two things I wanted to fit in. And these are kind of life life things. I think I saw that you yeah. recently had a baby. Is that is that true? Yeah. Congratulations. True. True. Thank you. 50 years old and I have a third child. <laughs> right. Wow. I, I have I, I have a 19 year old and um, I have a one year old. So. <laughs> I can oh, understand. Wow. Yeah. This kind of time span, but it's all, it's really a miracle. So I want to say congratulations on that. Um, and then Thank the second, the second thing is, you know, in doing the research, I've, I've seen your poker career has been tremendous as well. So congratulations on that. Can you talk just very, very quick, a little bit about yeah, I have about five minutes, so I'm not, you know, or seven minutes. So, but okay. uh, yeah, so so my poker career, listen, poker is outside of my children, family, uh, is probably my biggest passion. And you know, I'm literally on the way to Vegas now to play in a ten thousand dollar tournament. Um, I am, I am a uh, very passionate about poker. I I started about eight years, nine years ago. I started coaching and, and training about five years ago. I won two high rollers in Vegas uh, for a hundred thousand apiece. I got tenth. I made a, a, a what they call an unofficial final table at the World Series at a five K event. Um, you know, I was just in Florida and I, I got eighteenth place and I made a final table at the WPT event. So I, I really take it pretty seriously. I really love it. It's it's kind of like therapy for me in a sense. Like I, I'm not on my phone. You know, I get to really just be in the moment, similar to when I direct a movie now. It, I get to just be in the moment. Um, there's just something amazing about poker that's very parallel to life. You know, you're you're trying to figure people out. You're trying to figure, is this the moment that you're going to take a risk or you're going to be a little more conservative? Um, I enjoy what I love about poker that's, that's very different than any other game in the world, whether it's golf or, or any other skill game or sport. Um, you know, if, if I want to play tennis with uh, Agassi at Wimbledon, I can't do that, right? Because I'm, I'm never going to be a tennis player at that level. If I want to play basketball, you know, with, with the top basketball player, top baseball player, it's never going to happen. But poker, I get to sit down. Hold on one sec. I get to sit down with the top, top players in the world. And I outplay them sometimes, and I get to compete with them. Uh, and that's an amazing thing as an amateur, um, even though some people say, you know, I'm considered a pro at this level. But, you know, I don't do it for a living. But, but you know, it's just an amazing game. It's an amazing community. I really enjoy the competition. I really enjoy the mental aspect of it. I've really uh, worked hard 
in my coaching and uh, in training, and I continue to work on the game. It's a game that you'll never master. There's no such thing. It's always evolving, and I just really love it. And I just, yeah, so over the last five years, I have about, I think I have about 600000 in tournament earnings. Um, you know, that's just straight up in, in tournaments wow. only. And um, I've become somewhat of a heads-up specialist where you play one-on-one with people. And I, I don't know. I just love the game. I love the community. I play on television a lot. I, I bring a lot of fun to the game because, you know, I like to bring my – it brings my personality out. The light it's, – it's a lighter version of myself. Obviously, when you get down to a final table, it becomes a lot more serious. And, you know, you're playing for a lot of money and you're playing for respect. Um, But, you know, I think I've earned in the community uh, a certain amount of respect now. It took me, you know, many years to get there. But it's just an incredible game. And what I love about the game is if you don't have a lot of money, you can still go play the game for, you know, $1, $2 at the casino or a a $20 buy-in tournament. And still learn the game. You know, it's not about what level you're playing at. It's more just about, for me, uh, the fun of being with you know eight other players at a table and getting to know them and figuring out you know who's trying to bluff me and who's trying you know who's who really knows the game, who doesn't. And it's just been amazing. Unfortunately, the World Series you know was canceled uh, uh, last summer. Yeah. Uh, and this summer it's been moved to the fall, which I'm really excited to go back to. Uh, and, and my goal is, you know, I've won a bunch of titles in poker now. Um, but now my goal, my next goal, uh, after wanting to be nominated for an Oscar was to win a bracelet at the world series. So hopefully in time that that will happen. <laughs> this is, oh, this, this yeah, is I was going to say, go that's ahead, go great. Ahead. Sorry. So I would just, you know, cause I, I know that you're pressed for time, but, uh, yeah, I just wanted to close it out a little bit on my end by saying, you know, thanks so much for being our 50th. You know, I, I consider you to be Miami's greatest film producer that we've ever produced right. out of this town. And so congratulations and, and thanks for doing this. Of course, you know, the Miami Media and Film Market family would love to have you back for our conference, which is going to be in September this year. And maybe we can have a round of love, I would love as to well. come. <laughs> I, I listen, I would love to come talk poker, talk movies. You guys just send me the invite and I'll definitely try to, to, to be there for you guys. And, 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 and I want to say it's an honor to be invited to, to, uh, to, 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 to be on your show as the 50th uh, guest. Thanks so much for this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And my part, my partner, Patty Iris says hi as well. She loves you. She'd love to have you back. So thanks for doing this again, Randall. Yeah. Uh, my- tell Patty, I love it. You guys, you guys just send me the invite and the dates and you know me, I always try to make it uh, and be there in Miami because that's where my heart is. And love I just want, I wanted to end with um, the poker. That was a great allegory for life because in the industry, which it, it, it is a big industry, you know, you can get with the best. At the end of the day, Correct. if you you know Correct. put your head down, you work really hard, and so it, it is an industry that you have the opportunity to get there. And so I really loved that uh, t- that we had this at the end. Um, you know, someone I, who has worked I, with I, Martin I, Scorsese I <laughs> too. You know, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Our business in the movie industry. You know, you could be on your first movie with, you know, or second movie or fifth movie with the greatest filmmakers in the world. And in poker, you kind of get that same opportunity. And there's not a lot of mediums, you know, or, or businesses and, and sports and games that you can do that. Most of them, you have to spend 30 years before you could ever get a chance to play with the best. So right. I agree that they're very similar parallels. Yeah. Thank you so much. This this was a really Thanks, a, guys. A tremendous interview yeah. for our 50th. Okay. Thanks, man. Have a great day, Randall. All right, Randall. Great. We did it. We yeah. did a wrap. Oh, we no. wrapped it, and we wrapped it in a, in a big way. That was awesome, dude. So. You see, this was this was hustle producer style. We just kept with it, kept with it, and the fucking thing happened. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. We are back. We are back. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Randall Emmett. Thank you as well to your assistant, uh, who did such a great job as well in organizing the multiple sessions that it took uh, to, to kind of get this done. We didn't uh, mention that. Which, no, we didn't. The, the epic journey of, of getting uh, this, basically this, uh, this thing together was, was quite the journey. So I really want to thank Sean for helping us throughout the process and uh, such a busy guy, you know, he, Randall's still producing, he's making, he's directing other films. So just kind of getting him uh, 
to do the interview in, in various pockets and, and the dedication to getting it done, both for Randall and Sean. Thank you guys both for making this amazing interview happen. Yeah, I got to say thanks, Sean, too. I wasn't interfacing directly, but I certainly was there as a part of it. So he, he did a phenomenal job. What what a, a, a partner uh, uh, Randall Limit has in Sean. So yes, I'm going to bring up something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, which is Dune. It's about to come out. It was going to be day and date, but they decided to have that one just be released in theaters. I'm a huge Dune fan. I've read the books. The original version, which was directed by David Lynch, he's one of my favorite directors. I love it. I've watched that film maybe 30 times or so. It's a big inspiration for me. Um, The teaser for this film, I recommend even looking at the teaser. I wasn't so sure with Timothy Chalamet how that was going to fare. Um, But the teaser is just amazing. Um, He stars as Paul Atreides. But you also have a 305-er, Oscar Isaacs. Oscar Isaac, who plays his father, Duke Leto Atreides, and you have so many big names in this. Zendaya, you have um, Jason Momoa. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a blockbuster as big as any blockbuster. Josh Brolin is in there as well. Uh, right. I know Josh Brolin, uh, having spent a week or so with him in Haiti for my second Haiti documentary. He's a cool guy, really, um, really uh, wild and crazy guy, but super cool guy. I'm excited to see him in that movie, but I'm really excited about this movie in general. I think it's going to do well. So remember we said oh, yes. on screen, we did. Miami. Yes. Check out Dune. That's exciting. That's going to be one of the big ones that that we're going to be looking very closely at as as it rolls out of the gates. Yes. And, you know, we've always been on top of things before they even hit. We're going to talk about the Queen's Gambit right now. As social media would say, yas, queen. Is that how they do it? (laughs) Yas. Yas. (laughs) So, you know, we got this one. Before it really, really hit, the composer, one of the composers of of the music, who is um, on one of our interviews, and, you know, we've been looking to get him back. He's been so busy. Yeah, Um, Carlos Rafael Rivera. Rivera. Just, just, yeah, an amazing talent and an amazing composer who's won his Emmy Awards and is now just probably on another track to get nominated again for the queen's gambit yeah i mean he worked with the director of the queen's gambit on the show that he was emmy he was an emmy winner for which is godless Mm -hmm. and so you know amazing job on the queen's gambit he didn't do as much scoring because they use a lot of original music right the queen's gambit has a lot of fans i mean i was just reading the Hollywood reporter and there was a piece in there that had some sound bites from some of the fans and it's the who's who of Hollywood, Stephen King, Karen Gillian, Kerry Washington, Josh Gad, even in music, Halsey, all big fans love the show it was one of their favorite shows of last year. So, you know, big ups 305 is doing it big as always, and someone that we include in our 305 family, Anya Taylor-Joy, the star of oh, yes. Queen's Gambit. Um, she lived in Miami briefly. Well, well, yeah, she, well, she was born in Miami. It's actually one of the first things she said when she hosted the last episode, I believe, of SNL this season. And she got an unexpected response. The audience just went wild. Uh, the first thing she said was, that she was born in Miami and then she just kind of took a step back of the audience went bananas. So it's, <laughs> it's fun to see the Miami brand out there uh, and really kind of resonating uh, even in places like New York's uh, legendary SNL studios. So yeah. that was awesome. And she also mentioned she's Latina. She's Argentinian. Yeah. As well. There you go. So that Speaks brings it back from, from the top. 
top of the key. But, yeah. you know, we're looking for that interview, Anya. Mm-hmm. Um, Oscar Isaacs, too. Oscar Isaac. I keep calling him Isaacs. Oscar Isaac, we're looking for that interview, too. So, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get to them pretty soon. I saw the teaser for Anya Taylor-Joy's latest film, Last Night in Soho. It's directed by Edgar Wright who directed one of my favorite movies of last year, Baby Driver. And mm-hmm. it just yes. looks incredible. Incredible. Yes. The story is unique. It's about a, a woman who's a fashion designer that then can transport herself back to the 60s. And yep. then it becomes a mystery intrigue thriller. It's yep. super stylish, just like Baby Driver. So I'm excited to see that. And I'm excited for our interview, Anya Taylor-Joy, I'm putting it out there in the world when we do get that one. Um, I do want to have a small little piece about the Emmys, which is coming yes. up and yes. mention small acts, which was one of my favorite series from last year. So I'm rooting for small acts in a big way. Ha. And then coming up for the next Emmys, I did want to mention Underground Railroad again. I mentioned it last week. Another 305 or Barry Jenkins and also Oscar winner. I mean, I've been watching that and it is just visually stunning. It's a masterpiece. I said that I don't really speak on. I try not to speak as much on series that I haven't watched the entire piece, but it is another 305 or Barry Jenkins. We're calling out for an interview with you. Yes. Uh, you know, putting that out there. We've already interviewed his Moonlight partner, Terrell Alvin McCraney, uh, his writing yes. partner in Moonlight, Terrell Alvin McCraney. You can listen to that. I think that that was our 27th episode, yes. so you can listen to that one. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a little Emmy's nod right there. And then one more show, which is a connection to Screen oh, Heat yeah. Miami. We're going to look for our friend Lucius Baston. He's on Loki coming up. Oh, yeah. This that's week. a big one. Disney Plus, baby. Disney Plus. I saw the episode last week. It was amazing. More Marvel coming at you. <laughs> more Marvel and more screen heat connections. Lucius yes. Baston. Um, we're going to have him back on. I actually uh, chatted with him last week. Awesome. You know, congratulated him and... Um, yeah. He's coming back on. I think it's going to be on our our intro and outro, but uh, excited to have him back on. We're flaming it up. Dude, again, we got it. We got a toast to that. Virtually toast to the big 5-0, brother. We did it. 50th episode. And more to come. More to come. We have so many, so many queued up for you. Um, Interviews coming up so yes sir stay tuned i'm kevin sharpley i'm jl martinez and this is the one and only 50th anniversary Heat, Miami. <laughs> yeah. yes dolly boom